So imagine the, imagine I stole some a beam from you, right. and it's got Leon Wiener Dow written on the beam somewhere. Right. So once you've stolen an object, then you have to give it back, and then you can apologise. Don't mess around. You can't you can't mess around trying to apologise before you've given the object back. So what happens if I steal an object and then build it into my house, so that the cost to me of of repentance will now be destroying my house. So basically, at that point, you've made like a huge impediment to tshuva. I, I, there's no way I'm going to make tshuva if I if I know that in order to make tshuva, I have to I have to knock down my house. It's and crazy, actually. It is. It's amazing. It's a, it's a it's a revolution. We don't want society to uphold truth. We don't want society to be to be upholding like. We want we want things to be a little bit rough, so, so that this a person who wants to make tshuva, we don't hold him to account. We don't we don't. Uh, we, it's a doraita obligation to give the object back, and we we turn our back to that. And we say no. The Torah might insist that you have to give give back your beam, but no, we're not we're we're, we're not going to follow the Torah. The Torah is too harsh in that sense. We believe in factual truth, like we believe that there are facts. I think Judaism does believe in facts, but we don't believe in moral clarity in that sense mm-hmm. we can say that both of those are morally true mm. and yet they contradict each other that's what we believe and you and if you're american you believe that there's morality on the side of the democrats and morality on the side of the pre-trump republicans yeah i don't fantasize about the victory of the left in the same way as i don't fantasize about a victory of the right i i live within that that tension That was my chabruta and dear friend, Rabbi Joel Levy. I'm Leon Wienerdal, director of the Beit Midrash at Kolot and creator and host of Padrash. Joel and I were discussing a text in which the houses of Hillel and Shammai argue about what to do if a stolen beam has been built into a house. I won't go into the details quite yet. We'll get to them later in this episode. What's important to understand now is how radically their arguments differed from ours. They were passionate arguments with a lot at stake. Sometimes, as the Jerusalem Talmud tells us, they even got violent, not unlike our arguments. But there are important differences. They weren't trolling each other anonymously, nor were they in a back and forth on social media that led to their assuming increasingly extreme positions. Nor were the texts and images to which they were responding determined by an algorithm that caused each of them to inhabit a parallel universe. What can we learn from their argument about how to navigate this very complicated moment in which the line between fact and narrative has been blurred beyond recognition? We have a lot of tour to learn. Y'all stay with us. How do I tell when I'm being manipulated? There are so many videos like that. What's real and what's not. It has to be true. They are shutting down the discussion. So if we're looking to answer the question of what the internet is doing to us. Our reality that we've been taught in school and that we've been told on the mainstream media and all this for so many years, it's been false. There might be no better place to look than QAnon. So what is Q? 
You should instead be asking, who is Q? Because even though, like, on the surface, this community, it seems totally fringe. I believe there is someone out there putting information on the internet. I believe that somebody who's trying to awaken the public to what's really going on in the world. In some ways, QAnon is the logical conclusion of everything that's happened on the internet. Our text for the day is from Rabbit Hole a New York Times podcast series that offers a compelling exploration of what the internet is doing to us. Episode 7, Where We Go One, examines QAnon, and it provides us a meaningful place from which to launch a discussion about knowledge and narrative, truth and misinformation. The backdrop for Q is the WikiLeaks release in 2016 of emails from Hillary Clinton and her campaign chair, John Podesta a conspiracy theory emerged that the two were running a child sex ring at a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. Mainstream media and culture mocked the theory, a posturing that, from the perspective of those who believed it, further entrenched them in their position. And then... We have had uh, challenges that we really should have taken care of a long time ago, like North Korea, Iran... Afghanistan. About a year later. It falls on the people in this room to defend the American people. This video starts making the rounds on the internet. Where President Trump is like posing for photos with his military advisors in the White House. We have the world's great military people in this room, I will tell you that. And he says to the reporters in the room. You know what this represents? Tell us, sir. Uh, maybe it's the calm before the storm. You guys know what this represents? Maybe it's the calm before the storm. What's the storm? Could be the calm, the calm before the storm. What storm is the president? You'll find out. Thank you, everybody. President Trump said yesterday it was the calm before the storm. This whole thing, like, it made news for a few days. The calm before the storm. Calm before the storm. How is all this not the storm? Once again, laughter and mockery only opened a new door. But then, a few weeks later, this series of posts started showing up on 4chan from an anonymous source claiming to be a high-level government insider with access to classified information about the coming storm. These posts, over time, told this story about a powerful shadow government of elites, including the Clintons, the Bushes, the Obamas, the Pope, Hollywood celebrities, how they were not only running a child sex trafficking ring, but how they had secretly been behind everything. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. From the assassination of JFK. President Kennedy died at understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. To 9-11. Right have another one, another plane just hit. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. To the financial crisis. Traders say this is the craziest day they have ever seen in these markets. And that President Trump had been recruited by the military. It falls on the people in this room to defend the American people. To take them down. From these threats. This was the coming storm. And the code name of this undercover informant was Q. 
This is conspiracy theory par excellence. Things are not what they seem. Players of great political and economic power are colluding to exercise a web of control, manipulating the media, spreading misinformation in order to hide the truth. Have you ever wondered why we go to war? Or why you never seem to be able to get out of debt? Why there is poverty, division, and crime? What if I told you there was a reason for it all? And Q's message, which got amplified by YouTubers and people on social media. What if I told you that those who were corrupting the world, poisoning our food, and igniting conflict were themselves about to be permanently eradicated from the earth? You might think that an idealistic fantasy. Well, let me tell you a story. Really starts to resonate. From Harrisburg, PA, where we go one, we go the mainstream media tells you so many lies that we needed an alternative voice that was going to speak to the patriots. QAnon does what any great theory of esoteric knowledge does. It speaks to the hearts and minds of those suffering from the vagaries of disempowerment in this world, and it's shielded by the impermeable claim that it has decoded the falsities thrown our way in order to hide the truth. Their beliefs may sound absurd, but they are sincere, and, like all deep-seated beliefs, they encourage action. I'm in, all the way, come hell or high water, and I'm with the rest of the Q Patriots. Where we go one, we go all. Just looking through some of their posts, it's clear that a lot of QAnon believers are genuinely sincere. Somebody sent me the YouTube video talks about eating children. I mean, I can show it all to you, okay? It's all over my Facebook. Like, they truly believe not only that what Q is saying is real and that there is this horrible conspiracy going on, but also that they can be a part of stopping it. For some, the actions are dangerous and extreme. Blocking Hoover Dam, storming the Capitol... But even for those who fall well short of this, their beliefs force them to reassess and recalibrate their relationships. My, my family, they think I'm nuts. I call them traditionalists. They still believe in the world the way it was in the 50s. Did you talk to them about Q? No. They didn't believe me, so I just dropped it. It may sound like a recipe for despair, but in fact, it offers a horizon of hope. And whatever their politics were before Q, what a lot of them seemed to have in common was that at some point they had seen or experienced something that taught them that the world was unjust. And to them, Q was saying that things are going to get better. These videos have given me hope for the first time in 40 years. I would like to welcome to Padrash Rabba Sarah Hurwitz, who is the president and co-founder of Yeshivat Marat, which is the first Orthodox yeshiva to be ordaining women as clergy. Uh, she serves also on the rabbinic staff of the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. 
Babasara graduated from Barnard College, uh, Columbia University, and completed Drisha's three-year scholar circle program. And she was ordained in 2009 by Rabbis Avi Weiss and Daniel Schberber. So, uh, Robasara, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Padrash. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking, when you heard the Rabbit Holes episode, Where We Go One, what were your initial thoughts and reactions? I find myself in an echo chamber all the time, where my voice is amplified by my peer group and by the people I most associate with. And of course, the sentiment that we're amplifying is the most correct <laughs> sentiment there is. And so we get into the cycle of feeling that we are so right and that not only are we right, but our way is the only way and everybody should agree with us. Let me push a little bit further on that. What's obviously kind of shaking about QAnon in this episode, and especially you know after the storming of the Capitol, but also before, is the extent to which uh, it's not just a matter of comfort. Being in an echo chamber has the clear benefit of the fact that we don't always have to explain ourselves and we can kind of let our guard down and say what we really think and be affirmed. But then obviously there's the danger that you're pointing to. QAnon is so extreme that I, like when you were listening to it, did you really think, huh, that's like a danger in my world or for me as well? Or were you thinking like, okay, there's something I can think about, but there is a huge difference, you know, as we say in, in Hebrew, lahavdil, there's a huge difference between the echo chamber that they're in and the echo chamber that I'm in. I fully recognize that that echo chamber is crazy. I want to explain it a little bit. In the world we live in, we have to take in and listen and hear multiple voices. And I, I think the, the reason why we need to hear multiple voices is we get very stuck and sure about what we think is, is right and wrong. Now, there are times that maybe there is an objective right. <laughs> there is something that is, is truly worth fighting for. And I think that the, the people who are associating themselves with QAnon truly believed and felt and feel what they're fighting for is the only and right way. But I wonder if the foundation and the premise that they're following in is a sense of justice that I like to think about as being overly righteous. In life, we want to always pursue justice and morality and making the world a better place. But I, I often wonder at what cost this phenomenon that, that QAnon has established might be an overly righteous sense of, of being right. And, and sometimes being right is wrong. <laughs> You put me in my place in saying my echo chamber is okay, their echo chamber is problematic. And that reminded me of uh, a George Carlin joke from many years ago where he talked about how, you know, anyone who's driving slower than I am is a slow poke and anyone who's driving faster than me is an absolute crazy maniac. What I do want to ask is that there's something going on with the QAnon echo chamber raises for us about the way in which we have an exclusive avenue to truth. And those who are outside our echo chamber and those who are kind of wheeling and dealing in mainstream, quote unquote, knowledge are in fact uh, pulling the wool over our eyes. And so in a certain sense, uh, we need to be in this echo chamber in order not to get fooled. Well, it feels really good to be right. And, <laughs> and when we're right and others are, subs are substantiating our rightness, 
then it makes us feel good in the world. Right. And, you know, I heard once uh, a wrongologist, I don't know if you've heard that, that what, phrase. What before. is, yeah, help me with that one. So Catherine Schultz, she's a self-defined wrongologist, W-R-O-N-G-ologist. And she, she writes for the New Yorker. I listened to her TED talk that she gave on being wrong. And I really like the way she uh, framed how we like to be right. In other words, she's saying that in general, if somebody agree, disagrees with us, our instinct is to always think that they are wrong or they might not have the right facts. And if we can just give them the right facts, then they'll agree with us. And so we go ahead and we, we offer facts. And then when they still disagree with us, then we go on to say, well, you know, maybe they're just don't understand the facts. And then we really explain the facts. And then once they still disagree with us, we just turn around and say, you know what, they're crazy. <laughs> and so it's a little bit of the same sentiment that you were, that you were discussing, but, but it's, it's this framing that nobody can disagree with us. And if you do, you must be nuts and crazy. Wow. That's very, very interesting. I'm thinking about that initial uh, WikiLeaks of the Pizzagate, and then I'm, and then I was listening to the the way in which, okay, cheese pizza refers to this, and from there we come to the conclusion that Clinton and Podesta are, are running a child sex ring in D.C. In a certain sense, I guess what we could say is the facts are agreed upon, which is, you know, there were these emails where. Um, cheese pizza was referenced an inordinate number of times so that we kind of quote unquote agree upon the facts and, and where we disagree is what we do with those facts. It becomes very interesting the way in which we, I guess, entrench ourselves. And that's what you're saying. We entrench ourselves in our positions and our understandings and interpretations of those facts by shielding ourselves from those competing interpretations. The only thing that I would just say before we return to that point of justice or ask, I guess, uh, before we return to that uh, issue of justice is it sounds really good and really alluring to leave our echo chamber and engage with someone who is fundamentally different uh, than I in terms of his or her outlook and in her terms of how she understands the facts. But what do you do, and I'm sure you can draw from personal experience, when you find yourself turning blue in the face, trying to talk down someone from a position that you truly believe is either absurd or wrong or dangerous? Well, I, I hope to explain that a little bit through a, a Jewish lens in a few minutes. Because I, I do think that there are, are times where it's worth it to break down an entire system. And then I think there's times where you have to just walk away and mm. either it's agree to disagree or just let two opposing ideas stand side by side. And mm. so that's the world I want to live in, actually, okay. to embrace some diversity. Let's go ahead and transition to the question of how you framed what you were hearing and processing Jewishly. The first thing that jumped out at me is the sense of justice that this group of people were standing on. Mm. And it, it felt as if it was a, a very strict kind of justice. And what I mean by that is it was, it's my way and no other way. Now, tzedek, which is often the, the, the word used for justice, is used many times in our tradition. Mm -hmm. It's really an ethic that we stand on. And so one might say that that justice is a, a very Jewish value. And of course, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, you know, justice, justice, you shall pursue. All over the Torah, we find instances of, of tzedek. 
But actually, when you look very closely, you would notice that many times that tzedek is used, it's not used alone. It's used with another word, often with mishpat. So pursue tzedek and you know justice and mishpat, which is another version of justice, but translated as as uh, you know, maybe a softer kind of, of justice. And then there's the, the tzedek that Maimonides talks about, which is the, the justice of weights and measures, that it has to be so precise and so specific. And if it's just a little bit to the right or left, it's not called justice. And I wonder if this is the kind of tzedek or justice that QAnon is standing on. And I think the image that I, I came upon, you have to sort of stay with me as mm-hmm. I explain sure. it. I would like to. It's a Gemara from, from Gitten, 5a. And uh, the, the question that the Mishnah is asking is what happens if a thief steals a beam from a, from a building? So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to imagine the situation. A, a beam has stolen a particular beam or a, a marish. And then he went and built it into another palace. So he stole something, he used that beam to build another building. So the rabbis are wondering what to, what to do with that situation. And so Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel argue, as they often do, and the house of Shammai says that the definition of justice is, is that you have to demolish the building in order to give back the exact marish, the exact beam. What Beit Hillel says is, no, you, you don't break down the building, you give the owner of the beam the monetary value. So obviously, Beit Hillel is usually how we interpret and we go according to Beit Hillel that it's crazy to sort of break down the structure. But I'm really interested in the imagery of Beit Shammai, like what is going on in Beit Shammai's mind when he say you have to return the actual beam, the actual marish. And I'm just trying to imagine like, what kind of world is that? And I think it's the world of QAnon. What do I mean by that? It's the world of, of saying that there's only one kind of, of right. And what is right is this like fairness of somebody lost something and you have to destroy an entire building in order to give the owner back that, that beam. And I guess there's, there's logic to that. There are times where it makes sense to destroy an entire infrastructure and to, to, in order to rebuild something else. If the entire infrastructure is built on a lie, so to speak, or on a stolen beam, then yeah, maybe you do have to demolish that, that infrastructure. It can't, it's not sustainable and build something new. But on the other hand, the world that Vaishama is asking us to live in is, is saying that, that there's no moving away from the strict sense of justice because there's only one kind of right. The only kind of right is that the owner should get back the exact beam. But think about how much destruction that leaves in its path. So whenever I teach disagreements between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, I, I, I like to think about and ask What's the cost of each position? The, the halakha is according to Beit Hillel. We, we always side with Beit Hillel. But that being said, um, right, as the Gemara in Yevamot says, Beit Shammai kept doing according to Beit Shammai. That is to say, there is truth value, as the Talmud in Eruvin says, there is truth in what Beit Shammai is saying. There's value in what they're saying. And so I, 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 I like to kind of think about what's the cost of pursuing the position of Beit Hillel. 
And, and for that matter, what's the benefit of if we were to pursue or adopt the position of Beit Shammai, what would we benefit? So, so let me ask you about that. We'll stay on this text for one second before we go back to QAnon. What, what, do, you, what do you think? What, what's the cost here that we pay for adopting the more compromising, the more accommodating, the more realistic maybe even position of Beit Hillel that says we're not going to destroy the whole uh, roof in order to get the original beam back to the owner. And alternatively, what's the benefit or the, you know, the kind of contribution of Beit Shammai's insistence that, no, we have to return the beam? What we gain out of Beit Shammai is we, we get back exactly what we lost, no matter what the cost. In the case that it, it's an object that has unique value it's important. What if it's just a regular, right? In other words, do you think that Shammai is only saying that we, we should give it back in the case that it has unique value, or even if it's just a regular old beam? I think Beit Shammai says you you always give it back. I think Beit Shammai is saying is, is you can't create an infrastructure that's built on something that's stolen. Mm. And that Beautiful. is not something that can exist and is not sustainable. There's something compelling, I think, about that claim. I was thinking, what would it be like for me to live in that house if I know that I'm sleeping uh, under the roof, which was built with something with something stolen from someone else? You know, what if that person comes to me? How would it feel to me to be a clear, knowing uh, beneficiary of stolen goods? Yeah, but then the flip side, just yeah. to keep yeah. going. Mm-hmm. Is according to Beit Shammai, you know, we live in a society where justice must be achieved no matter what the cost. I want to connect it back to the podcast and QAnon and, and the issue of echo chambers that, you, that you've raised. One of the things that struck me in listening to a lot of the people who found themselves following QAnon is that many of them were actually looking at what they considered to be serious injustices in the world. And they were saying the world as it's being presented to us is not only, not only is it being distorted by the mainstream media, but there are deep structural injustices going on. And part of what we need to be doing is actively working to uh, correct those injustices. If we now bring this Talmudic text from Gitin into conversation with that sentiment from many of the followers of QAnon, where does, where does that take us? I fully appreciate the sentiment that QAnon feel that they're trying to achieve a certain sense of justice. And you sort of referenced before that my echo chamber is more correct than your echo chamber. And I do think that there are times where you are so passionate about an issue that you you know you're right. And I'll just reflect on my own journey just for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm, please. The fact that that I believe that women could be rabbis, even Orthodox women could be spiritual leaders. I know that to be right. I know that that to me feels like justice. Mm-hmm. And I also know there are many who don't agree with me. So I, I don't think that my goal is to to bring everybody over to my point of view, mm-hmm. but I want to pursue something that I know to be right. But I have to ask myself again: at what cost? What is dis- what is worth destroying in order to rebuild something? So for women rabbis, I do think that there is is worth re envisioning certain parts of the community in order to allow this new growth to occur. But I think that there are certain communities that I wouldn't push. 
um, or try to bring along because it would just be too destructive or there wouldn't be that growth that I imagine to happen in those communities. So to bring it all, all together, I think that I think it's good to pursue justice. I think it, it you know, it's a Jewish value. Um, we got to strive to create the world we want our children to grow up in and for it to be a better place. But I think, and this is what I started saying at the be beginning, justice has to be mitigated with something else. And so two references that I, I want to bring up, um, both from Tehillim. Tehillim says that happy is the person when tzedek yashuv mishpat v'achrav kol yashrei leiv. So happy is a person who only when tzedek or justice and mishpat, righteousness, shall come together. So the vision here is that when tzedek is alone and separate, separated from this other value called mishpat or righteousness, then uh, we're, we don't know how to function properly. But when they come together, when they're merged in one sentence, then we shall achieve happiness and, and, and satisfaction in the heart. And the second, very similar, is also a reference in, in um, Tehillim, where we're told that the, the throne of God, it sits on, on four ethics. And, you know, I, I, again, I, I love this image that in order to, to have this godly embodiment, you need chesed, emet, tzedek, and mishpat. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before you. And then happy is the people who, who are able to sort of embrace this image. And so how do I put it all together? I think in order to pursue justice, you have to know when to mitigate it with something else, with chesed, with kindness, with stopping and caring and listening to another perspective, with knowing that maybe your sense of justice is not somebody else's sense of justice and really checking and hearing and listening if what you think is right is truly right. And when perhaps are you overly righteous <laughs> in your pursuit for, for being right? And maybe that's a time to step back and to really check and make sure that what you're pursuing is something that's meant to be productive and not destructive. That is something that's gonna help bring about growth and creativity and not darkness and, and destruction. Let me, if I could, pick up on one thread of what you said. And I want to go back to your experience as a woman in the Orthodox world who, who, who's ordained as a rabbi. And, and certainly that's a minority position in the Orthodox world. And as you said, that you think that that's God's will. I assume when you're in conversation with people who are passionately opposed to that idea, you are both looking at similar Torah verses and saying, yes, it says that, but what it means is something else. What I'm wondering is if there's a way in which there's a kind of similarity to what's going on in terms of people like QAnon, right, who, who think that there's a, a hidden level of reality that I understand and that someone else doesn't. The way you laid out the question is there are, are verses in the Torah and then our our, philo our philosophy is one of machloket, is of accepting disagreement, of knowing that there are a, a multiplicity of voices within a way we interpret something. 
And so it, it more than I look at a text one way and you may look at a text a different way, actually through our tradition, there's been Maimonides who says one thing and the, the Sefer Echinach who, who says something else. Um, and so there's actually precedent that I'm standing on in order to embrace this halachic viewpoint that's not only my own, but I'm looking at it because it's been an ongoing conversation for 2000 years that I'm continuing. And I feel confident therefore to have a conversation with people I disagree with because I know that I'm right for me, but I don't need to be right for the world. Hmm. And I think that that's the, the danger of the echo chamber. When you only hear voices that are the same as yours, you're not checking your soul or your heart for what is reality and what's not reality. And even in the, the podcast that you referenced near the end, there was a, a woman who didn't want to discuss the details with her daughter. Right. And you have to question that. Why? Why yeah. didn't want, you know, why didn't you want to talk about it? Is it because you didn't want to be challenged? I'm really, really glad you mentioned that because that was on the tip of my tongue. And I was going to reference it, but from a different perspective, which is I think that what she said is she doesn't want to um, mention it to her family because her family will think she's crazy. And so what I understood from that, and and I'll just invite your your comment in response is there's a way in which someone who, in this particular case, right, a follower of QAnon or a former follower of QAnon, she understands reality in such a way, she feels like she's seeing something which everyone else says, you are crazy, you are a nut. How, what, what are you seeing? Are we looking at the same reality? And so, and so she's choosing uh, I would even say, quote unquote, in a certain sense, to be Beit Hillel, to salvage her relationship with her family and bracket the whole the, the discussion in order not not to provoke animus. At that moment, I actually almost I mean, not almost I think there was a part of me that felt sorry for her, I felt sorry that she had to, um, you know, to kind of hide herself and her belief from her family members. I agree. I think that's exactly my point. And in fact, when I think about creating my organization, and putting together a board or trying to, to create policy or setting a vision, I, I, I often wonder, do I want to fill my board with people who are only gonna agree with me or do I want positive dissenters? Do I want people who are gonna ask me big questions and put my thinking and make sure that I'm examining an issue from every perspective? Can you describe what would be the outer limit of a board member you would invite? Give me a sense of either a practical example or a kind of rule of thumb or a way of conceptualizing where you would say, okay, that's no longer a constructive sense of diversity. Well, my mentor, Rav Avi, always says, know from where the criticism comes from. If it's somebody who you respect mm -hmm. and you know they respect you, mm. then you listen <laughs> to, to what they're huh. having to say. So I think the how far would I go? I, I want people who I respect and who I know have my best interests or the organization's best interest or the world's best interest at heart. That's a very, very interesting answer. And second order, thanks to Rabbi Avi Weiss for, for that piece of wisdom. The question that I would have is, is the respect that you have for that person a function of how should I say it, their integrity, their values, their way of being in the world, or to what extent does that respect have to do with their the opinions that they embrace? It's a great question. I, I think it's those two things in conversation with each other. 
Is there something you want to leave our listeners with? I think that I've been really influenced by a Yehuda Amichai poem called The Place Where We Are Right. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. And I particularly like the ending because I imagine Yehuda Amichai maybe knew the Gemara, the Talmud, the piece of, of teaching that we, we share together, imagining that in a whisper will be heard in a place where the ruined house once stood doesn't allow for growth and creativity and uh, the proliferation of, of new ideas if you're out to destroy a house in order to return a stolen beam. That's beautiful. And, and it really ties together um, something that I was thinking earlier in when you were talking, which is about the relationship uh, between Sedek justice and Sodek being right. It's not reducible to, uh, to being right. Rabbi Sarah Horowitz, thank you very, very much for being with us on Padrash. It was a real pleasure to learn from you and to hear your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to our hypertext segment, we'll break briefly in order to meet Shira Dekel Katz, Executive Director of the Southern Sorek District's Cluster of Regional Councils and a Kolot alumna. I thought that meeting her could give you an opportunity to meet one of the very special people who learns with us and to hear how learning at Kolot has impacted her. Shira, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? I live in Ariel. I'm a mother to three gorgeous children. I'm a CEO of the Southern Sorek Cluster, uh, which is a very interesting job or part that I, I, I take in on myself. I've got 10 municipalities that I need to make them collaborate and work together. Um, my second degree is in, in business uh, management. Um, and that's it, I think. I love life. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being here. So, and thank you for sharing that. Could you also share with us a moment during your time of learning at Kolot that stayed with you and impacted you, either personally or professionally? I remember we had uh, during our um, learning a Shabbat, and we were asked if someone wants to uh, be called up to the Torah, Aliyah uh, la Torah. And I volunteered because I always volunteer because I want to experience new things. It was great experience. First of all, trying to understand how to read it right or, you know, sing it right. I don't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. And then arriving to the moment, which was very, um, it was very moving. 
because everyone was standing and listening and, and it felt like something uh, very spiritual happening in the room. And I took it as a very important moment because my son, my youngest son, was about to go to Bar Mitzvah the following year. And that moment I understood what is going to go through him. I mean, what he's going to be experiencing. So it helped me to help him to prepare himself for the Bar Mitzvah. So he, he would also have a very good experience which, that he would take for the rest of his life. So I'm very grateful about this Shabbat and about this opportunity that would never come without Kolot. Thank you. Shira, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. <laughs> Like every episode of Padrash, learning at Kolot pulses between the text that's discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www.kolot.net. And now, back to our episode. In the hypertext segment, we turn to a practitioner of some discipline, a journalist, a therapist, an educator, a consultant, to allow us to examine the episode's issues from an unexpected perspective, thus ensuring that the Torah of the Beit Midrash and the Torah of life mix fully. Today I invited Justin Hecht, a Jungian psychologist whose practice includes dream interpretation, to help us explore the way in which dreams and the unconscious offer a kind of alternative truth to the one we encounter in our waking state, a chasm that's often difficult to bridge. Justin is a psychologist and Jungian analyst practicing individual and group psychotherapy and executive coaching in San Francisco. He's a graduate of Harvard College, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, Boston University, and INSIAD. In his work with individuals and organizations, Justin seeks to integrate his training in Yugian analysis, group and individual psychotherapy with his experience in business and organizations. His work is informed by his meditation practice and his decades-long commitment to Buddhism. Justin, a lot of people would say that dreams are just dreams. It's our mind racing around, our imagination doing things while we sleep. But in your work, obviously, you view dreams as a window into what's going on inside us, what's, what's happening below the surface. So I'd like to invite you to say something about what I'll call the truth that dreams are expressing, uh, and, and maybe also add something about what's difficult in understanding that truth that the dreams are expressing from the place of our everyday consciousness. Thank you. And that's a wonderful question. I think I would start with the idea that unfortunately we don't have any scientific proof uh, about what a dream is it's hard to analyze it scientifically so i am really practicing a kind of an art but i do believe that throughout human history dreams have been very very important to people and i think that they really exist in the space of narrative and I do believe that we human beings are narrative creatures who have a deep 
need to see our lives as having a beginning, a middle, and an end, and to feel that our progress through that journey is informed by a narrative arc and by qualities of purpose, qualities of direction, qualities of motivation and meaning. And what I would say is that I view my role as a, a Jungian analyst as being to help people discover who they really are, what is most uh, resonant with them in their deepest selves, and dreams are an invaluable aid to that. And one thing I would say about that is that as when you watch a play, listen to a symphony, or try to experience a poem, the final authority for the interpretation of the dream is always with my client. I'll do my best to give my perspectives, to amplify, to suggest, to reflect. But in the final analysis, you make that interpretation. You decide what resonates. You decide what's true for you. And does the narrative help you? That's the question. I'm reminded of a story that about the Israeli author A.B. Yoshua, and he has a story, Three Days and a Child. And one of the critics that wrote a review of the book uh, in one of the Israeli newspapers said, well, it's obvious um, that he's playing off of the motif of the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, where Abraham takes Isaac three days to Mount Moriah and, and so forth. And Abi Yoshua responded to him that in all honesty, with total uh, forthrightness, he had no conscious thought of that story or motif when he was writing it, um, but he agrees with that analysis of his story. You talked about dreams um, or kind of what you, the work that you, you do with dreams is kind of an art form. So is it possible that, um, that you hear something and you see something as the listener, as the outside uh, experience, as the, as the person on the outside who's experiencing and listening to and observing that story, um, that maybe you have some truth to offer as an, as an interpreter that the person who's in it uh, can't see or doesn't understand? Yes, I, I, I do think that's possible. And the phenomenon you're referring to is, is close to or maybe the phenomenon we call cryptamnesia, where there, somewhere in the awareness you've heard a story and forget that you've heard it mm -hmm. and then reproduce it and or in the creative process, it comes out of you without a conscious awareness mm -hmm. that you'd heard the story before. But this also is close to Jung's idea of archetypes and collective unconsciousness or collective consciousness rather. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that an archetype in collective consciousness is this deep, enduring human pattern. Let me ask you, though, how would you describe the relationship between that aspect of a person's psyche or, um, that comes out in the dream um, with the everyday consciousness? Jung believed that most dreams played predominantly one of two functions. One was what he called compensatory, and that was to help you see something that you do not see. For instance, I had a client who was feeling that she was doing a very good job leading an organization and getting a lot of compliments. And she had a dream that there were a lot of wild beasts at the board table. And this dream 
she felt accurately helped her to see something she was not seeing, which was that in this organization, there were a lot of people who really had political ends that she had been blind to. And that helped snap her out of naivete and was actually quite useful to her. Another kind of dream is, is a more expository dream. And another dream I remember was a, uh, a client who, who had done a lot of good work, was gen generally a very benevolent person and um, felt unloved because of a very painful childhood. And in the dream, he's posing in a picture with his family and the family continues to be enlarged by other people who had loved him and cared for him. And this dream was very meaningful in allowing him to accept that he had expanded his original nuclear family to include a, a much broader group of humanity. And this helped to console him and helped him to feel less lonely. So the, those are a couple of examples where ordinary consciousness would have us unaware of something and a, uh, a compensatory would dream, dream would say, hey, pay attention. And, and in a similar way, someone might feel a little deflated and sad and an expository dream would say, look, there's really more to this than you're aware of. either the bridge between the everyday consciousness and the dream consciousness is, is uh, unbridgeable or where there's a kind of resistance, maybe an active resistance to not hearing um, or not seeing what it is that the, the truth that's, that's being presented to us in the dream or the message that's being offered to us in the dream. Great question. What is the resistance? What happens when a dream is trying to get our attention and we're, we're refusing to see it? Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a good time to mention something about psychotherapy and put in a plug for my profession, but also to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories and the difference between you know, dreams and a conspiracy theory. And what I would say is that in periods of great social turmoil, uh, psychotherapists in the field of psychology and social studies and, and intellectual endeavor in general are seen as a great threat. And I believe that they're seen as a threat because dream interpretation and individual psychotherapy is a lot of very hard work if it's done right. It's a lot of hard work for me as an analyst and a psychotherapist, and it's a lot of hard work for my clients for whom I have tremendous admiration because they face their demons and they do not look for easy answers. And I presented two facile stories to give an example of the difference between dream consciousness and everyday consciousness. But the reality is that that's the tip of an iceberg of a lot of very, very hard work. And it requires people showing up regularly, developing a trust in me, developing a trust in their psyche and what their psyche is saying and being willing to entertain what these dreams might mean. We psychologists and psychoanalysts are seen as very threatening. And that relates a bit to conspiracy theories. As I listened to the earlier parts of the podcast, I was thinking, well, now what is the difference between a dream and a conspiracy theory? And I think that the fundamental difference is that a dream is your personal unconscious production. 
In other words, you don't work to produce it. It comes to you. And then what you do with it, hopefully, is to approach it the way you would ideally approach a poem or a symphony or a great work of art to try to understand the context of the production of that art, to be in inquiry about how that touches your soul, where it fits in the context of your narrative, what meaning it might have, and to try not to be defensive or resistant. So that's the context where a dream can, can help you in your life. A conspiracy theory is has very few of those characteristics. It's external to you. It serves your existing defenses. It provides a refuge from doing hard psychic work. And it comes into your psyche as a compensation typically for feelings of inadequacy or frustration. And it frequently appealed to people's vanity, narcissism, and paranoia. And I know that those are harsh and judgmental, uh, pathologizing words, and I don't love to use them, but I do feel that that is what is uh, happening in our society with conspiracy theories. Let me push a little bit in the clear distinction that you drew and, and see whether I can try to blur the lines a little bit. I recognize the fundamental distinction you're drawing between something which is internally generated uh, and a product of, of my own psyche and, and my own narrative uh, and something that's fundamentally a turn to the outside. What I do want to ask about is two basic, perhaps, commonalities that they have or characteristics that they share. One of them is the idea that things are not what they seem. That is to say, there is a level of reality which we see in our, in our everyday world, which is very limited. And that to really understand what's going on, we're going to have to go way deeper and, and even take into account and take seriously things that at first glance look patently absurd, right? Beasts around a boardroom table and pizza and child sex trafficking. You know, in other words, something which you think that's just ridiculous, but, but then what we're being called to to do in both cases is take something that at first glance looks really, really absurd uh, and, and take it seriously. That's one thing. And, and the second thing is that role of someone else, um, that external person, um, whether it's a therapist or it's someone who offers me a, a, a helping hand in understanding it and a sense of um, justification in making that move of um, seeing something deeper that's going on than what appears at first glance? That's a provocative question. Thank you, Leon. <laughs> um, so that there might be a way that somebody who introduces another believer to the, to the Q anon conspiracy theories might be playing a similar role to what a therapist is. Right. As I said, a provocative question, I think that in general, people I know, and I know quite a few, who are more or less involved with conspiracy theories, there is um, almost inevitably personal, business, professional, relationship, and psychological failures that are not addressed. And the difference between a therapist, especially a psychologist, um, or a psychiatrist who have years and years and years of training mm -hmm. and hopefully their own analysis so that they come to the task of interpersonal psychotherapy with a great discipline and integrity, a long formation 
in the practice and a friend who, who says, hey, here's something you should check out, the difference really is night and day. But again, scientifically, it's very difficult to prove. And that's one of the things that makes conspiracy theories so appealing, is that, as I said before, many people are contemptuous of, threatened by, uh, fearful, and filled with hatred towards people in my profession right. for exactly the reasons I cited, that we can be seen as these arrogant, unfeeling, demeaning, and contemptuous uh, authority figures. And I do everything I can to be humble mm -hmm. and to know that I might be wrong and that somebody could convince me. So I try to approach things with curiosity. Mm -hmm. But I would say that education and development over years, over decades, that's what makes it different from two friends having a casual conversation and saying, hey, I heard about, uh, heard about the latest Q drop and it really explains everything. I certainly didn't mean it to be provocative in a bad way. I very much identify with a lot of your basic assumptions about the distinction, but there's a kind of voice inside my head which says, well, wait a second. If I see a, a newspaper article that says the Pentagon said that no innocent civilians were killed by a drone attack, I immediately um, dismiss, okay, well, the Pentagon said. I'd kind of like to return to something you said about what's readily verifiable. It seems to me that the interesting place is that it's not readily verifiable that the monsters or the beasts around the boardroom table are those voices of dissent or discontent that, you know, that CEO was unaware of in her company. That's an interpretation and it may be compelling uh, and it may be incredibly insightful, um, but it's, it's definitely not readily verifiable. And so what we do is we take these facts and sometimes disparate facts and sometimes surprising facts uh, and then try to build a narrative out of them. And even when, and maybe especially when, those things aren't readily verifiable. Well, I think if we talk about epistemology, how we know what we know, I think we have to be very modest. Hmm. And I think one of the things that makes a conspiracy theory like QAnon so seductive is we know that our government has lied to us mm. again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So how do we know that they're not lying to us now? Unless we're full-time journalists or political scientists, and even then, it becomes really difficult. Mm -hmm. So I think that the best we can do is to try to have some heuristics and to try to be really uh, modest and to try to see if they have resonance and um, to be ready to admit it when we're wrong. Mm -hmm. A lot of what's in dreams is not readily verifiable. So in the two dream examples I cited, of course, the, the, um, there's no way to verify that the people in the first client's boardroom are actually wild beasts. It's, mm -hmm. it's more of a poetic suggestion that maybe mm -hmm. she'd been a little naive. Mm -hmm. And in the second dream, the friendships and colleagues that the second client had developed in his life, they're not literally in his family. So it's more a question of an emotional truth. Mm -hmm. And then we get to this very complicated question. Well, a lot of the conspiracy theories feel highly satisfying, highly emotionally satisfying mm. in, in a very similar way to people who believe them. And they believe them sincerely. Mm -hmm. And these beliefs motivate people to undertake certain actions. And I think that the problem and the danger is that people feel despair and feel impotent 
and feel distrustful. And along comes a narrative that is very hard to verify, but fits emotionally, has great emotional resonance with what people are saying and are feeling. Hmm. And as I was thinking about our talk today, um, Leon, I was, I was saying to myself, what if a family member or a friend begins to go down this rabbit hole of a belief system? Mm-hmm. And this is where I think dream interpretation has something to offer, which is that one of the things I try to do when I'm in uh, the role of being an analyst is to ask someone what they're not seeing, to try to serve that, that uh, compensatory function. So I had a talk with someone who was denying um, the reality of COVID. And I was very distressed because this person was actually a physician and was, was saying, essentially, it's no worse than the flu. We don't need to worry about it. Um, it it uh, uh, we're being manipulated. Dr. Fauci is making money off this. And he went on and on with an enormous amount of anger. And I could see he was really, really angry. And he was, he was talking about a, a, client, a, a patient of his whom he had had to intubate. And speaking about this person with rage and disdain, I tried to locate in myself what was not being said. And I asked him quietly, what do you do with your sadness? Do you ever feel despair around this? And it shifted the conversation to a place of compassion and it softened it a bit. He didn't stop his beliefs. I I wasn't trying to convince him about anything, but I felt like it shifted something and it made me feel like I was present to him. And I offer that as a way that psychoanalysis and dream interpretation might help people who are dealing with a family member or a friend who has become involved with a conspiracy theory. And that is to to find a quiet centered place in yourself and see if you can identify some emotional peace or truth that isn't being addressed. That's in- incredibly helpful. And, and it kind of touches upon something that I wanted to ask you. You shared a story about a someone who was resistant to the truth of COVID. But I was thinking about uh, in the context of a dream interpretation and the story that you told, you kind of provide a shift where you're not going head to head uh, with that person arguing about the assessment of reality, you're just kind of shifting the center of gravity of that conversation. Does it ever happen that you think I got to go head to head and help this person understand that they're um, that they're that they're not seeing something that they need to see? And when it does go head to head, or you do decide to do that, what are the tools that you can employ at that in those times? This really comes to the question of power, and. Um direct disagreements with a client where you challenge them and say, hey, there's something here I think you're, you're wrong about or you're ignoring this or, or, you know, I don't think this is a good idea, whether in the context of dreams or in the way of, of somebody um, living their life, those kinds of interactions are very, very tricky and you want to handle them delicately because when someone comes into psychoanalysis, it's a sacred trust and you want to use your uh, the power that you have that you've been entrusted with as as kindly and conscientiously as possible. And um, as I think about the regrets in my personal life, most of them are around when I fail to use that as carefully as I could. 
one of my mentors who's very thoughtful is a psychiatrist, and he said that his surgical residencies or experiences, uh, surgical rotations in medical school helped him to understand that sometimes you have to cut people to help them. And I'm never comfortable with that analogy, but I think there's some truth in it. I recall one person who was doing something really bad and couldn't sleep. And I, it was so clear to me, I needed to confront him, but I was also really clear that if I did, I was likely to lose him as a client. And I really struggled with that. Um, and I did everything I could to ask him questions, to try to bring his awareness to this situation. He was doing something deeply unethical. And finally I said, you know, it's, I, I, can't, I can't be silent anymore. And I, I uh, spoke with him as thoughtfully as I could, as compassionately as I could, um, and he was outraged and quit treatment. Most of the time, however, what happens is um, I'll offer an interpretation, it'll be rejected, I'll say whatever, come back and try it another day, and eventually someone will get it. That's mostly what happens. Um, but sometimes you do have to go head to head I'm touched that you take your work in, and I say your work uh, in a deep sense, right? Not technical work, but the work that you're doing in this world so seriously that those are the, uh, those are regrets that you're carrying around with you until the, until this, this moment. I do take the work very seriously. I am very idealistic. Some would say naive, but I, I believe it's an opportunity to help. And because this particular client whom I'm remembering, you know, had a, fair amount of power in the world. Um, my concern was that the actions he was taking would hurt others. And I wish I could have done more to help him see things differently, to be more thoughtful of the people whom I felt he was wronging. I started my career in advertising and made a transition to becoming a, a psychologist and was, was very motivated uh, to do that by the AIDS crisis and my desire to help people. And I, I had a friend who had been very active in the social justice movements of the 1960s and 70s. And he said, you know, psychotherapy is a revolutionary act. And um, I really loved that. I loved the idea that there's something revolutionary about helping people come to a deep understanding of who they are. And because I'm a, I'm a psychologist who also practices as an organizational consultant, I do work with people who have a lot of power. And I, I like to see that if I can work with someone who supervises other, other people in a work and organizational context, as they become more humane, more compassionate, it feels like I've got some leverage. So that, that's a satisfying idea for me, um, something that helps to make my work feel meaningful. Beautiful. Well, please uh, keep doing the work that you are doing, Justin. Thank you very, very much for being with us. It was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Liam. They didn't believe me, so I dropped it. That's how the woman in the podcast rabbit hole explained why she had stopped talking to her family about QAnon. She had to choose, either maintain her close personal relationships or her commitment to truth. But what if our relationships are a key laboratory for exploring and determining truth? I've come to think that this is what Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz was after in framing the QAnon discussion 
in the context of echo chambers. She quoted her teacher, Rabbi Avi Weiss, who extols the importance of listening keenly to criticism from a person whom you respect and who respects you. Your point of convergence is not agreement, but respect. Can we agree on the facts? That's a hard one nowadays. Rabbi Joel Levy suggested that the Torah posits the existence of facts, but then allows for wiggle space, as the houses of Hillel and Shammai then weave them together into alternative and conflicting moral universes, both of which contain truth. What could that mean? If we are the patient of Justin Hecht, who dreamed about wild beasts around the boardroom table, then we might partner with Justin to understand the meaning of that fact. Why would we partner with Justin, or anyone else for that matter? Partly because of his expertise, his wisdom, his training, but also, and perhaps equally importantly, because of two additional traits that he brings to the table, modesty and compassion. Someone who, like Justin, can offer us a quiet, centered place where we can confront difficult truths. We need to surround ourselves with Justins, with board members, with significant others, with what the Talmud calls Bare Plugta, those folks with whom we have serious and serial disagreements, and to listen to what they have to say, even when it's hard, especially then lest we be that other patient of Justin's who walks away, defriends him, or, like George Carlin, insulates himself by dismissing them as slowpokes or maniacs. It's not just a question of how we carry ourselves ethically. What's at stake is truth itself. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wienerdow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz and Justin Hecht, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman and Aaron Harris for their masterful sound editing, to my chavruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the wisdom, and the British solutions to the American political quagmire, and to Michael Goelsamer for the original music. Please visit our website at www.podrash.org where you'll find links to the original episode of Rabbit Hole and to Joel's and my extended Chavruta, along with the texts that we referenced. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating and write a review. It really helps. And with that, Season 2, Alma de Shikra, This Lying World, has come to a close. Maybe. Kind of. As you might have heard last week, I issued a confessional invitation to help me plan a bonus episode. So, I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but for that to happen, I need to hear from you. Please email me at Leon at Padrash, P-O-D-D-R-A-S-H, dot org. And as long as we're talking, share with me whatever feedback you have about Season 2 and ideas that you might have for Season 3. Y'all come back now, you hear? 
Have you ever noticed when you're driving that anyone who's driving slower than you is an idiot? And anyone driving faster than you is a maniac! Say, look at this idiot here. Will you just look at this idiot just creeping along? Whoa, look at that maniac. Go!